So I want to present the sort of second half of this transcendent order of dependent origination. And I'm just going to start with a brief recap of the first qualities that we went over yesterday. The first one, stepping out of suffering and going into faith. The Pali word is sadha, and it's actually also rendered as confidence, which might be more helpful uh, to some, that we, that we develop a confidence in the Buddha and what he did, a confidence in the Dhamma that we build based on following it and seeing how that works in our life, and a confidence in the enlightened Sangha. So remembering that while we can um, love our fellow meditators and community and appreciate their wisdom and kindness and all other qualities, until someone has actually reached stages of enlightenment, we can't put the same kind of confidence in them for knowing the way things actually are. So. Remembering that is important. <clears throat> and we always have to apply our own discernment, as you know. So confidence. And this confidence of sadha comes to, for, with regard to the Buddha Dhamma and enlightened Sangha, um, comes to completion with the attainment of stream, stream entry, the first level of awakening where one of the, the fruits of that is that kind of confidence or a complete removal of doubt about the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, enlightened Sangha. And as I mentioned yesterday, also removing doubt about the training. And then the next, the, that confidence is the condition, the supporting condition for joy once we realize that there's, there really is a way out of suffering, there's a joy that arises, and the Pali word is pamoja. And this joy intensifies into rapture, piti, with deepening concentration meditation or serenity meditation. And the next step, the quality that PT is a condition for is pasadi, which is translated here as tranquility. And then pasadi is the basis for sukha, happiness. And each of these, you know, happy, buoyant qualities are slightly different in their in their characteristics. And you know, looking from you know joy to rapture to tranquility to happiness, we can get a sense of those those diff- that difference and that change. And then when we have this happiness, it's a condition necessary condition 
for concentration, samadhi. And this is also a, a translation that can be somewhat problematic because when we think of concentration, that it may carry this idea of being, you know, you're very focused, but maybe kind of tense. And that's not it. It has to be relaxed and open. And so even if the concentration is honed in on, a, on an object like the breath or some other meditation object, there, what's really maybe a better translation for samadhi is stillness. So that we don't get that misunderstanding of kind of a tight focus. And samadhi can happen when you're when you're contemplating or or focusing on metta or the whole body. So it doesn't have to be just you know, some very tiny point. But samadhi is a complete stilling um, <clears throat> momentarily of the hindrances and and the defilements and yet there always there's always the potential for them to arise once you come out of that concentration or even you know the, the concentration can can be interrupted by <coughs> excuse me the arising of hindrances and defilements and even if the concentration is really strong after you come out of concentration or you know later on there those defilements are still underneath uh, latent and will cause rebirth so that's why we have to move uh, beyond the the serenity meditation into wisdom and i used to practice with um, a group that wasn't Buddhist, but very much into concentration meditation, and, and there were very good results in some ways. But I noticed that there was still a lot of problems in terms of um, there wasn't really enough support in understanding how to work with our habits and tendencies, the negative patterns that we have. So you can have great blissful experiences and think you've really gone a long way, and then as soon as you come out of that, there's some vicious argument with somebody, you know, whatever. It doesn't mean that there weren't other good things happening and people making real effort to change their lives, but still, you know, it's, it's so um, essential that we look at what the Buddha talked about with regard to wisdom and insight. So the next, this now we're going to look at the rest of the chain where this shift happens. Where we've kind of come to the, the peak on the serenity meditation, and when there's that stillness, when the mind goes still, even for a moment, insight can arise. That surprising, refreshing informative and produces change in your system 
And then you can also have the almost immediate flipping back to the old pattern. So it's, it's very important when insight arises to really note it, really, okay, that's how it is. That's how it really is. And remember the feeling that came with it and bring your mind back to that again and again. Because it can get lost at some point. So concentration is the sporting condition for the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. And without that, we don't wake up. We can't really get rid of the underlying ignorance that is the the root of this whole round realm of sansara. sansara. So this is essential. And the Buddha said, the destruction of the cankers is for one who knows and sees, I say, not for one who does not know and see, one who does not know and does not see. When the cankers are sometimes called the taints, the asavas, often usually described as uh, craving for sensual pleasure, craving for existence, and ignorance. And knowing and seeing means there's an intellectual part, the knowing, and the seeing is really the, the light of direct experience. And when you see, in the way that Buddha talked about knowledge and vision arose when he was at night of his enlightenment with each of the noble truths, and that knowledge and vision, that's what it is. He had the intellectual knowing, and he had the, the deep insight. This is true, and that's the kind of thing that you can't, be talked out of that. Nobody can like prove that wrong because it's Dhamma, known, inside. The Buddha said in some places you have to experience it in the body, like you know it in your body. And what we come to know is the true nature of the five aggregates. Form, feeling, perception, mental activity, volitional formations, however we want to talk about sankara, it's very complicated, but collection, and consciousness. And the Buddha talked about those five aggregates those five those five heaps because he was putting everything from this realm into those everything from material realm into those five so that constitutes anything that we would cling to 
we can identify as being in one of those categories. And I'm not going to say a lot about the five aggregates. You know, that's a whole different thing, and you've probably studied it already to some degree. But, you know, basically there's the form, the physical part, and then there's the mental part, which covers the other four. And those four can't really completely be separated into discrete categories, especially sankara, punyana, and sanya, perception. I'm not doing this in the same order. Sankara is obviously volitional formations, consciousness, and perception. They can't, they can't really be clearly separated there. Fuzzy boundaries. But it's all this mental activity. And you, you start to get the sense of the experience, that all of our experience is kind of a, a double stream of the, the material and the mental. And that this stream of experience or this is, is completely devoid of self. These are, all events are conditioned phenomena. They arise, they're present, and they cease. They disappear when the conditions disappear. The body will disappear, break up, when the conditions that support it are taken away. And that's the same for the other aggregates. And then we can contemplate that arising and passing away of everything, each thing. And the Buddha says, such is the arising of material form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, such is the passing away of material form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. The contemplation of rise, the rise and fall brings into focus the three marks, their impermanence, the dukkha, dissatisfaction, suffering, and that they're devoid of a, of a substantial or essential self. It's not me, it's not mine. It's through the direct insight of these three characteristics that knowledge and vision arise. See it as it really is. So this is a very important practice. You can really, you can really go through your day looking at everything around you. The cup, the podium, the microphone, the floor, the trees, the mountains the seminary, everything. It's like this. And then the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, even though it comes in, it's like you, you maybe get one flash, like, like the story I told last night. Fish tanks are suffering, family is suffering. 
You get you, you get a piece of it. You see, you know that you've seen it. And that knowledge can be suppressed. You can even almost forget it, which is why you, you don't want that to happen. The Buddha said losing wealth is no big deal. Losing family members, none of that is compared to loss of wisdom. So any situation, any kind of insight that arises, be sure to care for it, tend it, continue to reinforce it. And this knowledge and vision of things as they really are is the supporting condition for disenchantment. And with this disenchantment, there is a a serene and dignified withdrawal from phenomena. It's not a aversion to it. I mean, even though sometimes, um, especially with the next step in the chain, it can translate into things that are kind of like really, as you're very repulsed, but that's kind of mis- a little bit misleading in a way. We'll get there next link, but it's like um, there's really a calmness in it, and it's like, and, and as I said, I, I, my my experience, my sense is what comes then is a is a is a kindness, a softening of the heart, compassion. So the Buddha said, material form is impermanent suffering and non-self. Again, suffering is, is dukkha, so we don't have to translate it as suffering necessarily, dukkha, dissatisfaction, unsatisfying. Feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness are impermanent suffering and not self. What is impermanent suffering and not self? That should be seen with the correct wisdom as it really is. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So when you see this, you become disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with mental formations, disenchanted with consciousness. For any kind of conditioned phenomena. And we all have experiences of being enchanted. And it's not a very peaceful experience. We can delight in it. And that's what keeps us hooked delighting in this and that, here and there. But when we see what we're delighting in as it really is, then we're not delighting in it anymore. And instead of feeling like something's been lost, what you realize is that something profound and beautiful has been gained. And that, that, that gain, that stability is is not subject to 
being harmed by anything external. Something nobody can take away. Disenchantment is the supporting condition for dispassion. So this is where it intensifies, just like we had you know, joy being intensified into the next step of rapture. Now the dispassion is, I mean the dis- disenchantment is, is turning into dispassion. Dispassion, viraga. Oh, the, the disenchantment is nibida. And this now is viraga. And as we are um, in this process of this intensification, we're moving more and more in the direction of renunciation. And, and seeing that renunciation is trading up. It's trading up to freedom. So here's another quote from the canon. Whatever is there of material form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, one beholds this phenomenon as impermanent suffering, as a disease, a boil, a dart, a misfortune, an affliction, as alien, as decomposing, as empty, as selfless. You kind of get where the revulsion part comes in. You turn your mind away from these phenomena and when you turn the mind, when your mind is turned away from them, that is stilling of all formations. Then, if that, if it's turned away completely, then it's the stilling forever. That this is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of the foundations, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. The path to liberation is a path of understanding, of comprehension and transcendence. It's not escapism, and it's not indulgence. So that's exactly where the Buddha said this is the middle path. And the middle path doesn't mean it's halfway between indulging and self-mortification. The middle path is something else. where you don't fall off the precipice to either side. You stand there, you walk there in mindfulness and clear comprehension. So the middle way has nothing to do with moderation in that regard. It's not the middle of two extremes. It's a very totally different way of seeing that makes either of those clearly unproductive. Now when you contemplate these three characteristics of impermanent suffering and not-self, you might have a, a tendency towards one more than the others. And that's normal. We're different. So when, when I contemplate, it seems like the things that have come along in my life 
have most often been really emphasizing impermanence. And there's even this idea in the commentary that these each represent a different door to awakening, to freedom. So the door of impermanence seems to be the one that I'm most often walking through. It came, the, the first major hit for me was when my father died suddenly. I was 40 and he was 69 and really strong farmer. They just came back from Alaska. He was one of the two guys who got out of the bus and changed the tire. Tough. He didn't feel well that day. He was gone. And I wasn't ready. I didn't have any idea how to deal with this death thing. I was 40. I was living in Silicon Valley. There's no aging sickness and death in Silicon Valley. (laughs) Working with all these young people. We're all brilliant. Well, not me, but you know. (laughs) And, And you didn't even really share anything about your tragedies or the losses. I remember my mother calling me from DeMott, Indiana, 2,500 people in that town where I grew up, and everybody knows everybody's business and everybody's heritage and their, you know, what their grandfathers did and whatever. And um, you hear all about all the tragedies, and, and she would tell me about, you know, this person this illness and I got in a car accident and that baby died and whatever and I'm like I don't want to hear this I'm living in the land of no aging sickness and death (laughs) anyhow when my father died I wasn't ready and the sad truth is that a lot of people get to that point in their life whether it's a loved one or it's themselves and they're not ready And so it's really good to look at what it takes to be ready. And that was the experience that really threw me onto the spiritual path. Because I wanted to understand death. I want to understand what happens after you die and how to live in a way that we're ready. And it's really a great, that was so helpful. And then there have been other experiences that have emphasized impermanence for me. Sister Chitananda's main door is not self. Things keep coming up in her life that emphasize this, this is not me, this is not mine. The clinging, you know, she can, she can look at what's under there is really some idea of self and that that's what she's working at letting go of. And so, like, it's, it's like threads in the tapestry. You pull one and it, it's all going to unravel. So whatever way you really are oriented, that's fine. Just keep looking at it. And in each of those doors can lead to the unconditioned. So dispassion, then, is the supporting condition for vimuti, freedom, emancipation, And the Buddha said, with the destruction of the cankers, so again, these are the taints, craving for sensual experience, pleasure, craving for existence, ignorance, with the 
with the destruction of those we directly realize for yourself and enter and abide in the in the emancipation or the freedom of mind in the emancipation of wisdom which is cankerless and there's nothing left that makes for further bondage you can't get reborn after that there's nothing more to do you've ended your work there's nothing to add to what's been done and and when what someone realizes this becomes an arahant they live in they live in that experience of deliverance and so there's the part where they're living out the rest of this life that's still in the perpetuation of the past karma so you have a body and a mind but then when when they pass away everything goes still that's the emancipation attained when when dying all feelings being experienced with detachment not being delighted in become cool they arouse arouse no new craving they provoke no new expectations they lead to no new accumulation of karma so even though the fully enlightened being does things and says things it's not with any kind of greed hatred or delusion behind it and there's no creating of this thing that keeps reverberating and needing to complete itself because it's it's done the sage who is at peace is not born this is out of the canon does not age does not die does not tremble and does not yearn and then we get to now so this is like isn't that the end okay there's one more and this is the emancip- that emancipation supports the condition for the knowledge of destruction so this is kayanyana the knowledge of the fact that the taints have been uprooted completely and the buddha says that he understands as it really is this is suffering this is the origin of suffering this is the cessation of suffering this is the path to the cessation of suffering and we all know what that is that's the four noble truths you really see that understand it it's completely clear you know through knowledge and vision and you know that you know so this is where you, this is sometimes called reviewing knowledge and actually this is a process that's important in our in our own experience where there's insights and then you 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 look you know you know Ajahn Panyawato said to me that you you can actually be a stream enterer and not know it but when you get to any higher stages you know it doesn't mean that you would necessarily not know it's like keep track of what's happening in your practice and your development um
This is the cessation of the cankers. This is the path to the cessation of the cankers. As he is knowing and seeing thus, his mind is liberated from the canker of sensuality, from the canker of existence, from the canker of ignorance. When it's liberated, the knowledge arises in him. It is liberated. One who has crossed over attachment to the world walks in confidence, stands in confidence, sits down in confidence, and sleeps in confidence. She is out of reach of the defilements and knows she is out of their reach. When the Buddha said, it's like a man whose hands and feet have been cut off, whether he's walking or standing still or asleep or awake constantly and perpetually are his hands and feet as though cut off. And moreover, while he's reflecting on it, he knows my hands and feet have been cut off. And so whatever monk is perfected or whatever nun or whatever laywoman or layman, the cankers are destroyed. That stuff about nuns, men, and laywomen aren't in the text. I'm just adding that. The, he, the cankers are destroyed. Who has lived the life, done what has to be done, laid down the burden, attained his own goal, the fetters of becoming utterly destroyed, freed by perfect, profound knowledge. And for him or her, whether he is walking or standing still or asleep or awake, the cankers are as though destroyed. And moreover, while he's reflecting on it, he knows my cankers are destroyed. This is my last birth. There is now no renewal of existence. Unshakable is my emancipation. Destroyed is birth. Lived is the holy life. The task has been completed. There is no returning to this state. The end. Any questions? Yes. Yes, I can give you a very good example. So, I told you the story. I don't know how many people weren't here for tea time. Um, but basically, there was a realization that family is suffering. And it caused a, a, a disenchantment and, and an equanimity and a, a kind of compassion that was same for mother, daughter, son, all loved ones and all living beings. And it wasn't, well, it wasn't too long um, later, we'll just say later, um, things changed in a way that I could be a nun. And I... Um, was advised and did do um, d did some visiting to different monasteries and the monasteries where I could ordain as a to be a Theravada nun were sort of few and far between in those days and I wanted I wanted to go visit Amaravati and Chidhurst in England 
and Damasara in um, in Australia, and to go see my son who's a monk in Thailand, and all these tickets were expensive. I decided I would just go with the, one of those round-the-world things, and I invited my mother to come with me. And I knew that would you know, profoundly changed the experience, but she was 78 years old and in really good health, and I said, why don't you come with me? She loved going to monasteries. She went on many trips to Thailand with me, slept on the, the platform in the forest at Ajahn Mahabhu's monastery, and, you know, with the rats running past you and the whatever, everything. And, um, and so she came with me. And I think we went to 27 different monasteries on that trip. And um, she, the places she wanted to go were Italy and New Zealand, in addition to the other places. So we were on this trip and going to monasteries, and I'm, I'm looking at where do I want to go to train. And she kept saying, but if you go away, what will happen to me? And that repeated refrain felt so heavy me. And I think I was in Australia when I decided I'm really going to turn to her perspective and take it in. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the worry about turning to someone else's perspective and taking it in because it might throw you completely off. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't say it did that, but I saw from her perspective and I decided to try um, to move forward with my decision in a way that could still support her, so I decided to stay in America. Now, somehow through this process, that that realization got sublimated. And I had a friend who was a monk. He was one of the first monks I got to know well, who was a good friend of my son. So one of the beautiful things about being the mother of a monk, when you go to the monastery, like this in Thailand, then you get special treatment because you know elders are held in a different kind of light in, in those societies, and also you're the mother of a monk. And my son would come to see me. I was living on the, in the monastery, but he would come and he would always bring another monk along because he can't be there with me by himself as I'm a woman. And I would get to know all these other monks. And one of them um, was a good friend. And then he decided to leave the monastic life. But he was still in touch with me. And I had shared that realization with him when it happened. And now after all this other experience and coming back, I had completely sublimated that, that knowledge. And I talked with him on the phone, and he brought it up. And I actually had to work to reclaim it. It was amazing what the mind does. Because I was trying to be for my mother what I was before. So that's a loss of wisdom. And if I hadn't had that connection with that other friend who could then bring it back up to me and trigger that kind of bringing it back, it would have been gone. How did you work to reclaim it? 
retracing some of the steps that brought it up in the first place and recalling really how it felt and reminding myself of the truth of it. And it's, it's interesting because I could come back to that same feeling but not the same intensity. Like so often realizations, they have a certain intensity that lasts for a while and then it fades and that's normal. But the important thing is to not let go of the insight. And to, so bringing it back, it's, it's interesting because, and then I did go away uh, eventually. I went to England and trained there. And it was right after my granddaughter was born. So I left when she was six weeks old, which it's like there's a strong desire for renunciation. You can like separate from the things that are most compelling. I can really understand the Buddha leaving on the night his son was born. And it's like, it's not because you don't care, but you're in a different kind of relationship. You're in a relationship that says, I want to do for you out of compassion and kindness and and non-attachment, non-attached kind of love. But I know that you have, it's like not, not clinging to having them have to be any certain way at all. And really, um, really coming back to, you know, all these things that condition this arising of, of knowledge and vision. And then finding a way to have the right kind of balance of being loving in the way that, you know, says love to them without that attachment redeveloping. And then sometimes the attachment does redevelop, and then I'm afraid for, you know, what's going to happen to one of my grandchildren or something, and it's like, oh, look at that. You know, it's, it's like this, since the process isn't complete in me, there's still that potential for the arising of that attachment and craving. And then I get to work with it. It's like, oh, look at that. I'm afraid. Oh, let's look at where that's rooted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole process of that journey together and then gradually like trying to to understand from her point of view and then trying to arrange my life so that she could be supported and happy, which didn't work anyway, by the way, because it doesn't. (laughs) Anyhow, a real real process in learning about how this this works and how it can um, change and where some of the the dangers are and um, developing... And, and I, I asked Ajahn Pasano one time, so this was actually relative to a different insight, and I said, I know this, but I continue to act in this other way. Why? And he said, habit. And so that's the sankharas. That's the where you got to dig in and understand what are these habits of trying to be whatever... You know, and how can I understand what's behind that and 
really bring wisdom to it. So we have to break for lunch. And I hope this has been useful.